Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 9, after the healing of the man born blind in verse 8, it says, The neighbors and those who had seen the blind man before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying it is he, but others were saying no, it's someone like him. Perhaps they thought that it was someone who looked like this person, but really wasn't, because people who are born blind just don't receive their sight. But the man kept saying, I am the man. Verse 10, but they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. I would like you to take a a note of what's happening here. Jesus is not present. And all of the stuff that's happening in this long uh, exposition of the miracle is including the man who was born blind, the man and his parents, and also the religious leaders of the time. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Again, some people would say that this is like the narrator's guide to the readers. Oh, by the way, this is the Sabbath when this is happening. And perhaps some of you know the Pharisees do not like it when miracles are taking place on the Sabbath. In fact, they had a whole list of regulations that was guiding their actions on the Sabbath day, and Jesus perhaps was breaking some of those restrictions. Verse 15, then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. Namely, they were divided about Jesus, what he was able to do, what he was not able to do, whether he was from God or whether he was a sinner. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? That is Jesus. It was your eyes that he opened. He said, he is a prophet. This is a big, bold claim in first century Jewish culture because people were expecting a prophet like Moses to show up 
on the scene and almost initiate the end of the age. Okay, so this is a this is not a, a tame response from the from the man who was formerly blind that's now asking what he thinks about Jesus. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, this, this is kind of uh, important here as uh, the parents in the room and how you might think you would answer these questions, but I really want you to focus in on what the author says about this interchange here in the next verse. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God, intonation, not Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I don't know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? Then they reviled him, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible says, in very tame and eloquent words. They reviled him very politely. Probably not. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Note, Jesus, Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do Nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you're trying to teach us. And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered him, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. With a lot of uh, 
imposed commentary along the way, try to separate those two things, of course. But yes, this this story where Jesus has done this healing ministry and now we have this whole kind of off to the side, the man who was born blind under the acquisition uh, or the inquisition, excuse me, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders trying to figure out who did this miracle, what it means. And there's some some underlying information here that is, is difficult to weigh, or at least it has been for some scholars. One of those scholars is named J.L. Martin. He's a Yale PhD. I believe he did most of his teaching at Union Theological Seminary, which is uh, linked up with NYU, um, if I'm remembering correctly here. And one of the books that he wrote was called History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel. This is one of those books that kind of sets the trajectory of scholarship on its, on its edge and moves people in a different way. Once it was written, in fact, the landscape of studies in the book of John, it completely changed because some of the claims that Martin was making. This is something that now people who are writing and thinking about John can no longer avoid engaging with. And this is, this is cool here, and I want, if, if you're not tracking with me for a moment here, you might be thinking, this is strange, we're at church and we're talking about some old dead scholar named J.L. Martin, but I want to encourage you that we're reading John too. And if the academy has to deal with this guy, why in the world don't we? So what I'm trying to do is take some of his arguments, bring them down to our level so that we can see how he's reading John 9 because it has a big payoff for us as we think about application and how we might be able to explore this book on our own. So J.L. Martin, he comes to this, uh, this book of, of uh, the Gospel of John and he makes some claims right off the bat. And these claims shouldn't be things that, that surprise you because we've heard them before. We heard them about five minutes ago as we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. All of these authors are dealing with pre-existing tradition. Say pre-existing tradition. Pre-existing. Feels good, doesn't it? It's one of those party words, and just you can talk about that as you go. They're all dealing with these stories of Jesus and attempting to to make sense of them in the book that they are writing. And Martin says about John, he actually says none of the New Testament authors merely repeats the tradition about Jesus that they have. Everyone hears it in his own way. Everyone shapes it, bends it, makes selections from among its riches, even adds to it. Put in other terms, everyone reverences the tradition enough to make it his own. And immediately I go to America an idol because Randy Jackson, whenever he heard someone singing, would say, they made it their own. And this is what's happening here with the gospel authors. I'm sorry if that's a dated uh, (laughs) pop culture reference. He was a judge like 10 years ago on American Idol. Apologies to you. But these are the, the gospel authors that are taking these traditions about Jesus, shaping them adding to them, making sense of them for their own purposes and how they're writing. And as readers of the Bible, it's important that we identify some of these shapings and additions and things that the authors are doing to communicate to their audience. For J.L. Martin, this was an important line in the story. And I tried to make some symbols to you and some some signals as to getting your minds thinking about this. This is when the parents are confronted by the religious leaders. They say, ask the kid. He's of age. We don't want anything to do with this. The parents play a weird role in this story, do they not? If you had a child who was born blind 
and then some homeless rabbi shows up and puts mud on his eyes and tells him to wash and then he sees, you'd seem like you were pretty pumped about that. And I don't wanna psychoanalyze the text too much, but the only picture we have of the parents is, "Ah, that's our kid, but ask him. We don't want anything to do with it because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of the religious leaders. They were afraid of the Pharisees. Why? Because the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Apasunagogos. So here, this is important because the backstory is the parents don't want to answer this question for fear of being put out of the synagogue, for fear of being excommunicated, if you will. In fact, another way you can translate this is um, anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would become an excommunicate from the synagogue. This was all that they knew. This was their community. This was their people. And now Jesus is upsetting the balance and people are seemingly having to decide whether to follow Jesus or stay with in the Jewish community, in the synagogue, and the Pharisees were out on the warpath to separate those two paths, and now the parents don't want to risk their community and their comfortability for fear of what the Pharisees might do to them. Is there any point of application there that might be ringing some bells for you, perhaps? with the religious elite that's playing the gatekeepers, and there's only certain things you can say or can think, and if you upset the balance, you'll be removed from the community, and it's scary for you to make those claims. I thought it would be cool once we get through this teaching, depending on how, how this con- is conveyed, to get some T-shirts made up that say, right? Where that's like the ones who have been excommunicated. Kate's shaking her head no, and I can, I can go with that, I can roll with that. This, this shows up in a couple other ch- uh, chapters in John, specifically in John 16, this is Jesus in his um, upper room discourse, he's talking to his followers. I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Apa synagogas. Again, we see this term being used and the fear that it might be striking for the disciples as they think about being excommunicated from this community. We have a, a, a jacked up view of this. We think that once Jesus shows up and as soon as he's resurrected, it becomes Christianity versus Judaism. That's not what's happening here. When Paul is preaching the gospel, Paul believes himself to be a good Jew. He believes that he's inviting people in to a better reading of the Jewish scriptures. This is not side A and side B at this point, but Jesus is beginning to say that this is going to happen. We also see in John chapter 12 something similar. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Added note, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Apa sunagogoi, in the plural. 
And later in this passage, we see when the Pharisees are talking to the man who was born blind and he's beginning to push some of the buttons and, and, and maybe back them up a bit. They say, you were born entirely in sins and you're trying to teach us. And they drove him out of the community, which is no big deal for this guy because ostensibly he had already been driven out of the community. We see him begging on the way from, from out of the temple courts, parents nowhere to be seen or heard from. We don't know about their relationship. He might just be on his own with this other community of, of invalids and lepers and people who were on the outs of the Jewish community. But it says that the Pharisees remove him from this body of believers. And for Martin, becoming an Appa Synagogos is a problem. And this is where I'm going to help you navigate some of this because you wouldn't get it just in your reading of the English Bible. But track with me here for a minute. What Martin does that's ingenious is he says within the Gospel of John, there's a two-level drama that's happening. In the, on the one hand, he says that there is this... Um, this bit of teaching that's lined up with the context of Jesus. For example, Jesus heals a guy who was born blind. This is one of the traditions about Jesus that he did, but operating at a higher level is the context of the community in which the author is writing, and both of these things are infiltrating and influencing and shaping and making it their own Randy Jackson the text. So what we have here is an author who's dealing with traditions that are back there, but the author is writing in a new contextual moment and trying to make sense of these Jesus stories by incorporating some new stuff that's happening in the midst of their community, in the midst of their moment, and trying to make sense of it. This is what we do every week. We're dealing with 2,000-year-old scriptures if we're reading the New Testament, maybe 3,500-year-old scriptures if we're dealing with the Old Testament. That's pretty late, but some of you are conservative and you might think that it goes back that far. But either way, we're dealing with these old texts attempting to make sense of them in our moment in time. And this is what the author of the book of John is doing. Most people would say that the author is a hundred-ish, that, that might be late. But either way, we've got Jesus from 33 CE or AD, and there's been a lot of time that has passed up into the writing of this book. Some monumental things have taken place, namely the death, resurrection, uh, and ascension of Jesus, the beginning of the early church, but something that you might not think about so often, the destruction of the temple at the hands of Rome in 70 CE, this was monumental because when the temple goes away, the only thing that the Jews had at the time was the law. And they began to double down on the law and interpreting it in such a way where either you're in or you're out, which begins to lead into the parting of the ways. Judaism going this way, Christianity going this way, and people began to make real decisions on defining and identifying who's in and who's out. For example, one scholar says, making sense of, of Martin's work, she says, the Jews made a formal agreement that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, that person will likely be expelled from the synagogue. 
this would have been nonsense at the time when Jesus was first teaching. This surely would not have taken place for the man who was born blind. This is something that happens much, much later. On the two-level drama, this is the context in which the author of John is writing to address things that are happening in his specific moment in time and saying to the people, what will you do when you have to make a decision whether or not you will claim Jesus or whether you will claim your comfortability in the space that you have been born and raised. Again, looking at this passage, it says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews had already agreed. There had already been legislation, if you will, made that you're either going to follow us and our way or you're going to follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, we're going to kick you out of our community. The authorities, they would smoke out the Jesus followers by forcing them to recite a series of benedictions in the assembly. And this is where it gets really cool because what Martin is hypothesizing is at the time when the Gospel of John was written, there were things going on in the community where people would show up in a moment like this. And then someone might be forced to read 18 benedictions, excuse me, not read, recite from memory 18 benedictions. And the 12th of these benedictions is known as the Birkat HaManim. Say Birkat HaManim. It's the blessing of the heretics. Another great t-shirt. Can I get an amen? So if someone was to stand up and go through these um, blessings and stumble on the 12th, the religious leaders would say, you are a heretic. You are out. You are apasunagogas. You are expelled because they don't remember. Some have even said that as, as a member would go through each of the benedictions, the community would say amen. So you would read or you would recite the first one and the community behind you would say Amen. And once you get to that 12th one, if you don't say it right, or it seems like you're stumbling, or they have any sort of doubt that you might really be a follower of Jesus and no amen shows up, and you're out. This is the 12th, perhaps. This is the reconstruction of the 12th blessing of the heretic. It says, for the apostates, let there be no hope and let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the Nazarenes or the Christians and the Minim, the heretics, be destroyed in a moment and let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the proud. So for Martin, he says in this passage, the parents feared the Jewish authorities for the latter had already enacted a means whereby followers of Jesus could be detected among synagogue worshipers. Henceforth, anyone arousing suspicion could be put to a test. So when you guys show up and I've heard what, what grace is about, and I've heard that there's some shady business going on with the things that she believes, I would make her stand up and say these 18 benedictions. And if she waffles on the 12th, we remove her from community and they could do that with anyone in the room at any moment. 
there's two levels of the text that's happening here. On the first level, it's the level we talked about last week, the level that most of us talk about most times. It's this healing or this miracle that takes place where the man who was born blind is miraculously healed by Jesus. And from that, we learn that Jesus is Lord and Jesus has this, this power and this authority and he can show up and do, do crazy stuff. And that, that impacts how we pray. It impacts how we include people into this space. It impacts how we believe, perhaps. But on the second level of this reading, the context in which the author of John is writing, there's this fear of expulsion. This fear that's dominating the crowd at any moment. And as I'm thinking about this passage, and perhaps this is me living in my own bubble, perhaps this is just me dealing with the stuff that I've been potentially dealing with over the last five to 10 years as my faith has grown from high school into college through seminary into whatever it is now. And I have faced fear of expulsion at the hands of the religious leaders of our time. The gatekeepers who get to say who's in and who's out. And you're only in if you can sign off on these 10 points of doctrine that don't really have anything to do with salvation, but we say they're important, so if you can't align with them, then you're, then you're out. And I know that as I think about this, TRP is, is a diverse community. We've got different theologies represented in the seats, some of which are conservative, some of which are very liberal. And we kind of, we, we praise that. We think it's good that all of us can gather underneath of the banner of Jesus Christ and not turn it into a litmus test of these five or six things that you must be able to affirm in order to be part of this community. But as I'm reading this and hearing the parents fear, they say, let just talk to that guy. We don't want anything to do with that because we don't want to be removed from this community. We don't want you guys to know what we really think. We don't want you guys to be able to make decisions if we're in or out, because if we're out, we've got nothing. And I understand, and perhaps this is a wild leap, but in the American church context, sometimes, Christians are put on the outs because of things that they affirm and the things that they believe. And the religious leaders get to decide who's part of the community. And if we are left to our own devices, I realize that fear is a real thing that happens. Fear is a thing that also silences us on a really stupid level. Fear is a thing that silences our likes on Facebook. Fear is a thing that silences the things that we share on social media. Fear is a thing that doesn't allow us to say what we really believe for fear of what our parents, grandparents, relatives, friends, church leaders might think of us. Fear is a thing that silences us from the larger world because we do not want to have our comfortability upset. Now, one of the cool things about this is I know that for the people in these seats, you understand that there is no religious authority in TRP that is going to remove you from the community. But I do know, as surely as I am standing in front of you now, that fear plays a role in how we live out our Christian faith. Another stupid example. 
we have stickers in the back. And I understand that when people put stickers on the back of their cars, I understand that for some folks in the community, that means that you are one of the Habmanim. You are one of the heretics who thinks differently and believes differently and is uh, processing faith differently. I want to encourage us, and this is where I'm gonna land this jet. I want to encourage us to not allow fear to dictate how and when we speak. I want to encourage us not to let our fear of potential expulsion dictate the level to which we will stand up for injustice in our community, in our social media world, and in the much larger world in which we inhabit. I would like to encourage us not to let fear bring shame or to, again, move us in a place where we are unable or feel unable to speak truth to power. Do not pawn your responsibility off but engage the religious leaders as the parents in this passage probably should have just went to bat for their kid in the moment and taken the repercussions of that as they were played out in their own moment in time. Now, the way that this story is, is concluded in the Bible is Jesus hears that they had driven out, that they had apo synagogos, this uh, blind man, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Everything that this guy had, it was, it was already gone. Like he's, he's trying to repackage where he's at and what he now has, but the religious leaders say, we don't want you, you're expelled because you don't know how to make sense of this in a way that appeases our own beliefs. And Jesus shows up. It's, it's weird because he's been gone for so long, but yet as soon as the guy's expelled, he's back on the scene and he says, do you believe? The blind guy's got no context for this, so he asks a, a pretty uh, realistic question. Who is that person? This is a, there's an Old Testament background here from the book of Daniel, the son of man, and Jesus is tapping into this. But he's answering, saying, who is that? Tell me so that I might believe in him. The only thing that I know is that I once was blind, but now I see. Tell me who this person is. And Jesus responds, you have seen him. That's pregnant with meaning. Because the guy just started seeing like five minutes ago right? The, the list of people of which he has seen is very small, okay? But he says, you've seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. I hate how the NRSV translates that because Jesus didn't talk like an 18th century British person, right? You've seen me, and I'm here, and I'm the guy. Believe in me. And the story that the blind guy has been saying is, all I know is that I once was blind and now I see. This guy put dirt on my eyes and told me to wash and now I can see. That's my testimony. And now he's my ride or die. Wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, I'm with this guy and he says, I believe and he worshiped him. Perhaps I'm just making this up. Perhaps I'm just projecting my own garbage of church experience onto the masses here. But if we could content ourselves with the questions from Jesus where he says, do you believe in me? If we can answer in the affirmative, if we can say, yes, 
I will go wherever you lead me and do whatever it is that you tell me to do. Perhaps we would think a little bit less about the gatekeepers who are attempting to pull us into submission and make us think certain things and behave in certain ways and, and, and process faith in a way that fits their boxes. Perhaps we could just rely on the king of the universe who has invited us into relationship, giving us everything that we need for life and godliness, and perhaps that would be enough, maybe even so that his perfect love would cast out fear. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restore SBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.